Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thus we pray, make us know your ways, teach us your paths. For we know that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and testimonies. Amen. Turn please to Colossians in chapter 3. Just prayed that we recognize that his word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And that God will help us to walk in his ways because he is in fact the God of mercy and love. I want to read again this passage. We've been reading it for some time. I want to read it again, verses 1 through 17, and pick up just one expression. Hear the word of God. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all, these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now my plan for this week and the next two is to take up these particular characteristics as we have them in verse Verses 12 and 13, compassion and kindness I'll take up today. Next Sunday, humility and meekness, those two together. And then the following Sunday, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness or forgiving. Um, so to take them up like that, they, they seem to go together in these little groups uh, in, a, in a helpful kind of way. Uh, but just bear in mind, they're not unrelated. That, that this isn't a smorgasbord. This isn't a cafeteria of, 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 of Christ-like virtues. And I'll take this one and not that one. Or I'll take this one. I'm good at this one, but not so good at that one. These come together as a package. This is all of us putting on all of Christ, if you will. And so they're related. A person who uh, isn't compassionate is going to have a difficult time being patient. A person who isn't meek and humble is going to have a difficult time being forgiven and being forgiving. And so all of these go together. But I want to take them up just in these discreet ways because we haven't time to take them up uh, all together in one week unless you want to just stay till three. And uh, we'd be happy to do that. But um, so this week I want to take up uh, this, the, these two together, compassion and, and, and kindness. Uh, and the question is why these 
two in particular. Why, why does Paul say we're to put these on? Now remember, he's speaking to Christians here. Um, he isn't saying, put these on so that you may become a Christian. Put these on so you may, may be made acceptable to God. He's talking to those who are believers, talking to those who are accepted by God because of Christ. They're the ones he's saying, I want you to, be, to put on compassion and kindness. Uh, these are the ones he says are holy, they're chosen, holy, and beloved. And when he uses those expressions of this people, he's saying that, that God has taken the initiative. God has come to you. God has made you to be his. He's chosen you. He's set you apart for his blessing of salvation. And he loves you with a special love. This love with which he loves even his son. And so he's saying you're, holy, you're chosen, holy, and beloved. Now, this doesn't mean that if we laid all the people out end to end and, and together in some sense, that we'd be able to say, oh yes, these ones are better than all the rest. He doesn't choose us because we're better than all the rest. He chose us out of his kindness, out of his mercy, out of his compassion, out of his grace. It doesn't mean that we're better than others inherently. It simply humbles us by saying we needed God to come to us, take the initiative, do it all for us. That's how depraved, if you will, that's how bad off we were. So it isn't a point of pride in us that we're chosen ones, that we're holy and beloved by God, other than our pride, our boast being in him, because he's the one who's done all of this for us. So he's speaking to believers here. And thus he's speaking to those who are being renewed, as he says, in knowledge after the image of our creator. He's saying, because you're in Christ, because you're chosen, holy, and beloved, you have a new self. This new self is that which is united with Jesus. And that particular new self of yours, this new identity with which you have, is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Meaning, as you know, that human beings were created in the image of God. When Adam and Eve decided to not follow after God, the image of God in us was broken. Not utterly destroyed, but broken. And thus, we can no longer reflect God. Our reflection of who God is is now completely pervaded by our own self-interest, our own selfishness, our own pride. And, and it's uncontrollable. In other words, there's no way to extricate ourselves and our own pride and selfishness out of these characteristics any longer. They're all turned inward. We love, but, but mostly... We love because it makes us feel good to do that. We love because we like being those who love. We love because it's in our self-interest to do that. So it's all tainted with our own selfishness and all of that. And so we have to be renewed. And so he says, now, the only cure for this is a new self, a new creation. Um, Ezekiel speaks of it when he talks about God putting his spirit within us and causing us to walk in his ways, taking out a heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh, and by flesh he means they're one that's warm and beating and alive. 
so that he could then put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his ways. Jeremiah speaks of it when he speaks of God writing his law upon our hearts that we might really know and be inclined towards God. Jesus spoke of it when he says that we need to be born again or born from above or born by the spirit. Paul speaks of it when he says that for those who are in Christ, they're new creations. The old has passed, the new has come. So we have this, we are now, this new self, the old self, gone, new self here. And this new self now is being renewed in knowledge that is an understanding of the image of our creator. In other words, we need to know who God is so that we can know who we now are are and are being renewed to be. We've been created in his image. We're now recreated, if you will, in his image. We're to reflect him. And so the question is, who is he? So Paul says you must be renewed in knowledge. You must be renewed in a certain understanding of who God is so that you understand who you are. As John Calvin, he's a bit famous this year. It's the 500th anniversary of his birth, so you're getting all this... Calvin junk mail, but uh, but uh, it's interesting. Some of it, but but um, most of it's inviting me to things to spend money, which I don't do. But but anyway, um, as he writes in his Institutes, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, he he makes this statement. He says, "The best way," and I'm paraphrasing, "the best way, really the only way of knowing ourselves is to know God." If indeed we're created in his image, if we're created to reflect him, then we need to know him. And how do we know him? Well, we know him by way of the scripture, obviously. We know him as well by the revelation of Jesus. Jesus has come to reveal God to us. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we need to know Jesus. In fact, we could say that we're being renewed in knowledge after or in the image of our creator Or we could simply shorten that by saying we're being conformed to the image of Christ. Because Christ is the perfect image of God. You notice how Paul writes in 2 Corinthians and chapter 4, uh, verse 4, Paul puts it like this. He says, In their case, he's talking about unbelievers here. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to see the image of God, which look at Jesus. He's come to reveal him. And so when we say, why these particular characteristics, compassion and kindness, the answer is because God is compassionate and kind. How do we know that God is compassionate and kind? Well, we read of his compassion and kindness as we read through the scripture, the Old Testament scripture, and then we see his compassion and kindness personified come very up close and personal to us in the person of our Lord Jesus. When we look to him, we see the compassion and kindness of God. Thus, we are to be compassionate and kind, for we're being renewed in knowledge in the image of its, uh, our creator, we're being renewed, conformed to the very image of Christ. Um, thus, these two characteristics. 
Now, Paul says that we're to put these on. Now, in one sense, I want to say, there's nothing really fancy here. There's nothing really, hmm, how do I put it, unusual for the Christian. I mean, you shouldn't expect a bolt of lightning. You shouldn't have expect feeling a twinkle in your nose, heart, or any other part of your body when you come to put these on. Um, you don't sort of wait for a zap from God and go, whoo-hoo, there it is, it just got put on. It's not that kind of thing. This is, this is to be the normal work, the normal life of the one who is a follower of Christ, to be compassionate and kind, to put them on. When he says put them on, he says you must recognize there'll be all kinds of opportunities for you to be compassionate and kind and take advantage of those. This compassion that is this inner disposition that sees the needs of others and is compelled, therefore, to help them. And one helps them, that is being kind. Or, another translation, that is being good. And so we're to do these good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So this is the very life of the Christian. That doesn't mean it isn't a struggle. I don't mean that. There are times when we don't feel compassionate. We feel the exact opposite. And at those moments, we're to put that on. But we shouldn't wait for some big bolt of lightning. This is to be, in a sense, the normal Christian life, to be compassionate and kind. And we put on compassion and kindness like we put on the other virtues of Christ. That is, we recognize our own need to be like him, to image him, that that's real life. And we realize our sin, so we confess that we're not compassionate and kind as we ought to be. And then we pray that God would work compassion and kindness in us. And we look to Jesus. There's a wonderful, wonderful, helpful expression in 2 Corinthians in chapter 3 and verse 18. It says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul's saying this. He's saying the Holy Spirit lives within you. Thus the very presence of Christ lives within you. Thus compassion and kindness lives within you. Now how do we get that in us? How do we really, how do we really appropriate that? How does that become real to us and part of our lives? He says, I want you to behold the glory of the Lord. I want you to meditate upon Jesus and his compassion and his kindness. And you'll be transformed as you meditate upon him from one degree of glory to another. He's at work in us. Paul says in Ephesians in chapter 3 this. He makes this prayer. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14. He prays, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now you say, as a believer, doesn't Christ already dwell in my hearts? And the answer is yes. But this particular word for dwell is the word that means to make his permanent home. is isn't just a visitation. This isn't just he's bopping in, bopping out. This isn't just he came for dinner. This is he's making his permanent home in you, which means he's going to redecorate 
your heart. He's going to redecorate your very life. He's going to take out all the stuff that isn't of him and put in all the things that is of him. And so one of the things, two of the things, which he'll put in us that is of him is compassion and kindness. He's at work doing that. And so we meditate upon him. We see his glory and pray that he'll do that work in us and take advantage then of every opportunity to be compassionate and to be kind. And all this... Because this is love. If we're going to be renewed in the image of God, if we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, then love must be true of us. So Paul goes on with this prayer. He says, verse 17, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, may, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And being filled with all the fullness of God means that you're filled with compassion and we're filled with kindness. Thus Paul will go on in Colossians 3 and say at the end of all this, what what wraps up all of these virtues, including compassion and kindness, is that we put on love, which binds them all together in perfect perfect unity. So we're, we're to put these on. Now we realize then that as those who put on, being a follower of Christ isn't simply a person who takes off. In other words, we're not simply to be known by what we don't do. I'm going to say this because we're we're really to be known by by our do-do is how I put it earlier this week to somebody and they caught my attention to that probably wasn't appropriate and I probably shouldn't have just said that. But we're not simply known by what we don't do but we're known by the things which we do do. Those things which are true of us, of our compassion and kindness. Now, Paul has said that there's, if we're going to walk with Christ and be conformed to his image, we have to take off immorality and impurity and so forth. We're to take off anger and malice and so forth. Those things, we're to put them to death, he says. Take them off. But remember, that doesn't, that doesn't stop it. That doesn't mean we've made it. In fact, if we spend too much time concentrating our attention upon taking off and we put our attention on all these things that we're not to do, it may be that they become idols in our lives. And we say, look at me, I don't do this and I don't do that and I spend all my time trying to keep that out of my life. He says, no, no, it isn't just that, it's also putting on. I'm putting on. Now, clearly there are some things so heinous so disruptive to one's life and relationships, so unloving, that we must make certain we don't have them as part of our lives. And so if they're a temptation, we must suppress, we must put to death, we must put off. But we have to be careful that we don't think we're done when we've stopped doing a particular activity that's sinful. But we need to get on with doing those things and being that person that is true of Christ, true of one who's being conformed to his image, true of one who's in the very image of God, thus including compassion and kindness. Now, when Paul uses this this metaphor of putting on and putting off, he's talking really using language that could be used uh, to describe someone taking clothing off and putting clothing on. Um, Now, normally, when we are going to put on a new suit of clothes 
or as my wife and daughter say, a new outfit, and I've been spending all these years explaining men don't have outfits. Uh, but if you're going to put on a new suit of clothes or a new outfit, it's always best to take off the old one or you look really kind of funny. But Paul here can't be saying that we need to completely take off the old before we get on with putting on the new. That isn't his point at all. The truth is, and we need to recognize this about ourselves, spiritually speaking, we're all rather messy dressers because we shouldn't wait to get it off before we start putting something else on, which means most of us, if you look at ourselves, if you can see ourselves spiritually, we have a sock that's almost off and another one that's coming on, and we got a shirt that's sort of off on one arm, but put on a new one on another arm, or we got a pair of pants that's, that's got one leg in and one... It's, we just look messy. But something else to think about is that in the putting on, there are times when it's helpful because that helps us also put off. That is to say, when we're putting on compassion and kindness, it's very difficult at the same time, at the same moment, to be immoral and malicious. Because putting on compassion, turning our heart in that direction, seeing a need of others and and being kind to help meet that need, it's almost impossible at that moment, not impossible, because we're really good at sinning, (laughs) we're <laughs> really good at holding on to these things. But it's not impossible, but, but in, in pursuing compassion and kindness and these others that we'll get to later, humility and meekness and patience and forbearance and being forgiving, um, it helps to put off all of these others as well. So, having said all of that, let me quickly get to our words of the day. Uh, compassion and kindness. We're to be compassionate and kind because God is and we're made in his image. Uh, We've been reading a lot today from Psalm 103, and we'll come back to that. But it has Psalm 103 does. It's it's guts in this expression out of Exodus 33 and 34. And that's a a time you might remember if you can think about the history of ancient Israel and, and realize at that moment in time, the Israelites who had been in Egypt have now gone through all of the plagues and all that with, with ancient, Egypt, ancient uh, Egypt. And the plagues have happened. They've been delivered. They've gone through the Red Sea. They've come to Mount Sinai. God had called Moses to go up to the mountain to get what we call the Ten Commandments, to get the law and all of that. You know, in the midst of that, there was a great sin. Uh, the people got impatient and began, and they built this golden calf perhaps in their minds to represent God, but it was a misrepresentation of God, obviously. And it drove them not into godliness, but into ungodliness. And, you know, Moses got upset with that and so forth and broke the tablets, had to go back up in the mountain, so forth and so on. Uh, and, 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 and he has this interchange, Moses does, with God about, in a sense, whether God's going to go off, going to go with the people or not. And, uh, and, and Moses intercedes on behalf of the people uh, so that God would, God's presence would continue to go with them. And, and in this little section in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses really has three prayers. One is that he comes to know God so that he can know the very favor of God, as he puts it, right? To know God. The second is that God's presence would go with him. And the third prayer is that God would show him, reveal to him, manifest to him his, that is God's glory. That God would show him his glory. Glory And God says, I will. You remember, God says, you can't take it 
full face. I'll, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. You've got to turn uh, away your face from me, and I'll come before you. But, but God lays out his name to Moses like this in Exodus chapter 33, uh, verse 18. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he, the he there is God. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. So God said, I'm going to give you my name because in my name is my glory. You'll see it there. And the name is the Lord, which is this covenant name of God, this name that God gave um, Moses when he was entering into Egypt so that the people would know who, who had sent Moses. It's this name, I am. That is the Lord. It's the verb in Hebrew to be. God is simply saying, I am. I've always been. I always will be. I'm self-existent. I'm self-determining. I'm self-sustaining. I'm sovereign. That's who I am. And now he says, I want you to understand the, the heart of this. And he says, I'll make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The word for mercy is the same as compassion. Then in chapter 34, when all of this happens, verse uh, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now all of those words are mercy words. All of those words are compassion words. Throw in the word kindness and you pretty much have the the whole gambit of the Old Testament uh, translations for the words compassion, mercy, pity, sympathy, kindness, those words. And God's saying, this is how I'm going to be this because this is who I am. In steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God said, this is who I am. You can bank on this. Hang on to this. This is my covenant name. This is, my, this is the name to which you'll address me. This is the name by which you appeal to me. This is the name by which I will be faithful to you. There's a sense when God makes covenant with people that he's bound. And we think of that often because of our culture, being bound by contract. God has made these promises, therefore he must fulfill them. And that is not untrue. But it's more, there's more truth. And the truth is, he isn't simply bound by contract. He's bound by love. And he is love. And he can't be unfaithful, therefore, to himself. So he's bound to his people, saying, I'll be merciful to you, I'll be compassionate to you. And so we see how he is in the midst of the life of ancient Israel. For instance, Isaiah in chapter 63, verse 7. Again, I'm sorry I haven't got the time to catch you up in all the context of Isaiah's prophecy here, but it's, it's kind of a, a, a thinking back to what we just read really in Exodus that Isaiah has so that he can explain how it is that God deals with his people. Uh, Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7. Isaiah says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. That is the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the kindness of God. 
I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion. Why does God do what he does? Why did God do what he did in the context of ancient Israel? He did it because of his mercy, because of his compassion, because of his steadfast love. The little word steadfast love in Hebrew is the word you might see it from time to time. It's generally spelled H-E-S-S-E-D or sometimes C-H-E-S-S-E-D if you're reading a, conter- a commentary. The Hebrew word is chesed. you got to kind of... So I was afraid to study my Hebrew in the cafeteria and seminary for fear someone would give me the Heimlich uh, in the middle of all that. Or I might be choking and they'd just look at him and say, no, he's just practicing his Hebrew uh, and let me die. But... Um, but it's this word of covenant faithfulness that cannot be broken. That he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior in all their affliction. He was afflicted. Whew, I haven't time for that, but you get it in Jesus And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. And then it goes on and says he rebelled. But then it goes on to say, but then God came back to them. Why? Because of his steadfast love, because of his compassion, because of his mercy. God is merciful, compassionate. He sees his people in their need and is compelled to act. Psalm 86 illustrates this as well. This is a, a whole psalm. Uh, the title in my version of the Bible, the ESV, uh, says, Great is your steadfast love. It's about steadfast love. And it's a psalm of David when David finds himself in great need. David makes 15 petitions in this one 17-verse psalm. So he's in a bad way. And he comes to God. And the question is, upon what basis does he come to God? Does he come to God by simply saying, hey, I'm David, you owe me? No. He comes on this basis. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. For I'm poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I'm godly. The godly there doesn't mean I'm perfect. It means I'm one of yours. I'm devoted to you. I trust you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. David's saying, listen, I rely upon you. I'm devoted to you. So... I'm pouring out to you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. See, David knew the key word. He wasn't being disingenuous here. He was being honest. He wasn't saying, well, here's the magic word. I've got to fit it in there somewhere in Jesus' name. Um, and then, then God will answer me. But he comes to him, he says, I get it, God, I'm devoted to you, I understand that. I'm not perfect, you're forgiving, that's good, but, 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 but I want to appeal to you on the basis of your mercy, not on the basis of my merit. And so he goes on to make this, this prayer, verse 11. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. He's saying, listen, I'm wishy-washy. Sometimes I fear your name, sometimes I don't. So unite my heart together so that I'll fear you. On the basis of verse 13, he makes this appeal. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You've delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. 
Then verse 14, he says, there's these arrogant men, these insolent men who are coming against me. They're ruthless. So verse 15, he makes a request. But you, O Lord, are a God of a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He says, I know your name. You remember all the way back with the promise you made to my father, Abraham, my father Moses, that, that I'm, I'm appealing to that. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. He's saying, God, help me on the basis of your steadfast Love. Psalm 106. Very quickly. This is really one of those psalms that goes with the one before. I haven't time to read either of these psalms really, but Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 go together. And there's a contrast. Psalm 105 is a psalm where it speaks of God's faithfulness. It doesn't speak about the unfaithfulness of, of ancient Israel, but speaks of God's faithfulness. It's a wonderful psalm. You read it and go, whoo-hoo, everything's rosy and cool. Psalm 106, you get a different view of the same events from the perspective of unfaithful Israel. Begins, he says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. He says, okay, I get it. This is what really makes us tick. This is God's relationship with us. And then, verse 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. You remember the situation. They got to the Red Sea. They looked at the Red Sea. The Israelites didn't say, oh, we're in trouble now. We're going to die. They forgot about the fact that God had miraculously delivered them from the hands of their uh, masters, the Egyptians. They forgot the fact that, that as they left, everybody was healed. They forgot the fact that as they left, they plundered Egypt and had all the wealth of Egypt. They forgot the fact that they had, had now come out. And the Red Sea, really, if they were thinking rationally from all that had happened, they would have said, this can't be anything, really, compared to what God has already done. But they didn't. They rebelled against God at that point. Verse 8, yet... He saved them for his name's sake that he may make known his mighty power. He rebuked the sea and all of that. Then verse 12. Then they believed his words. Now that's not necessarily a compliment, by the way. It's sort of like they forgot his words when they were at the Red Sea. Then when he delivered them again, they remembered his words. In other words, they say, okay, we'll trust you now, given what you've done. Uh, Verse 14, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. And then it talks us through all the, all the ins and outs of Israel's faithfulness and unfaithfulness. But at every turn, God was faithful to them and came to them. Then verse 40, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he and he abhorred his, abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the land of the nations, into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes, and they were brought low through their iniquity. So you get the sense. This cycle of ancient Israel, faithful, unfaithful, faithful, unfaithful, faithful, unfaithful. And it corresponded with God's faithfulness, 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 faithfulness to them. 
Verse 44, Nevertheless, even in the midst of their sin, he looked upon their distress. When he heard their cry for, this, for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. And so the prayer on the basis of God's steadfast love is, save us. That's the nature of God's compassion and his kindness. That he continues relentlessly, everlastingly, perseveringly to come and do us good. Now he says, I want you to be compassionate and kind. We read Psalm 103. It's all about the compassion of God as, as we see the blessings that come from his hand. Uh, we, in our call to worship, we, we took up these blessings of forgiveness and healing and redemption and, and all of this because of his steadfast love to us. And on what basis? Verse 8 or verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He'll not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. See, that's the very essence of, of mercy and compassion. It's this empathy. It's this, it's this sympathy. It's, I know your situation, and I know how it looks, but I know the reality of it on the underneath of it, and so I can be compassionate towards you. And God says, I want you to be compassionate and kind to one another. On what basis? On the basis that you're all human beings, that you know each other's frame, you know what's going on in the inside, that should spark in you compassion and kindness towards them. See, we have a tendency to be very judgmental and arrogant. We live in an amazingly judgmental culture in everything, whether it's politics or sports. I mean, listen to sports radio. You, you have to laugh at these people who probably can't pick up a football, let alone throw one, criticizing people who can do both. And yet it happens all the time. In politics, the same way. We're hyper critical and the question is where's the compassion and kindness we're hypercritical of each other we're hypercritical of, of the lives that we live where's the compassion and the kindness we're to be compassionate and kind because we've received compassion and kindness from God in fact the compassion and kindness of God is manifested in the person of our Lord Jesus he comes because of the compassion, the mercy of Jesus. We haven't time, but if we would read Luke chapter 1, what's called Mary's song, and then the hymn or the poem of Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, they both speak of the coming of Jesus. And they speak of the coming of Jesus as the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the kindness of God. And we understand Jesus from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, that he is our merciful and faithful high priest. On what basis is, he's our, is he our merciful and faithful high priest? On the basis of the fact that he was made like us and he knows our weakness and thus he's become merciful, faithful, high priest. He represents us mercifully, faithfully. Why? Because he knows our frame. He knows what it is to be human and the weaknesses thereof. 
He knows what it is to be tempted and the temptation thereof. And so he comes to us in mercy and compassion as we call upon him. And you see, that's the, the way that we come to him. Just as those in the, old, in the New Testament, in the days of Jesus, would come to Jesus for help and healing, how would they approach him? Very often like this, son of David, have mercy on me. And he would. He would be merciful and kind and bring healing. Other times he fed them. Other times he taught them. All on the basis of his mercy. Because he saw people as they really were. As sheep without a shepherd, as he put it. Helpless and harassed. We see people as businessmen or as homeless. We see people as athletes or as intellects. We see people uh, as, as if they're wealthy or as if they're poor. We see people by way of their race. We see people by their heritage. Jesus saw people as we are. Like sheep without a shepherd. Helpless and harassed. And he said, let me help you. You need my help. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're smart, whether you're not, whether you come from a good background, whether you don't. He says, you need my help. Because you're lacking that which is essential to being human, which is to be united to God. And I'm the only one who can help you with that. So come to me. I'll be merciful to you. I'll be compassionate to you. I'll be kind to you. And I'll show the very kindness of God to you. Now, very quickly, I, I need 10 more minutes, so just relax. I'm sorry. It's summer. You don't have Sunday school right now, so pff, this, is, this is Sunday school for the week, this last 10 minutes. And I'm acting like I've never done this before. Now, you don't even expect it. I know most of you are going, oh, he's only half done. But I'll give you a time of 10 minutes. Now, um, this kindness and compassion does not come without cost. Because it's a moving of our own hearts to the misery, if you will, the poor situation of another. And it almost always means sacrifice. It almost always means cost. It certainly did for Jesus. The compassionate prayer of Jesus, one of them, was of course in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where mercy was being laid out before us as he identified with our human state as a human being facing death but even more human being facing the wrath of God but now the son of God facing the wrath of God on behalf of the sins of sinners on behalf of sinners like you and me that's what he was doing at that moment and his compassion led him to say not my will but yours be done it was right there you see the very mercy of God and the cost of it all we'd seen that time and time again in the life of Jesus. I mentioned last Sunday the time when Jesus was out and had been working a great deal teaching and healing and all the stuff that Jesus did. And so his disciples came to him and he said to them, let's go to a desolate place. In other words, let's go off and rest. And we went off to rest. What happened? People followed him and his disciples wanted to rest. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Let's teach them. So he taught them. And then he realized they hadn't eaten. So he said, let's feed them. Because he was filled with compassion. Even in the midst of his own tiredness. Even in the midst of his own difficulty. Still were to be compassionate and kind. Even when we're tired. Even when we're hungry. Even when we need rest. This came to me. I must confess. 
I really confess, when Karen was in the hospital, uh, she was, uh, we went through various stages on the first day of her hospitalization. And at one point, we were on a particular floor, and they were just observing her and watching her and so forth. And, and I was in the hospital room, and, and we were right across, right across from the nurse's station or whatever the big station is or where the nurses and doctors and everybody gathers. And, and, um, and I was getting incredibly annoyed <laughs> because every time I would look out there, I'd hear a lot of noise, and they were acting as if my wife wasn't sick. <laughs> you know, they were just going along their, their, their daily tasks and talking and laughing and, you know, whatever people do when they're at work. And frankly, this notion came to me of compassion and kindness. And I said, they have a right to a nice life today. They have a right to, to interact with each other kindly and, and as people do at work. And I need, even though... I'm worried, even though I'm stressed, even though I'm tired, missed that night's sleep, uh, even though I'm a bit hungry. No, I need to be kind to them. Because they were certainly kind and compassionate. Every time they came in, they were kind and compassionate. It was wonderful. They did their job well. And so I need to be annoyed by them. <laughs> Having a nice life. <laughs> the other moments of their life, even though my life was falling apart. We need to be kind and compassionate in the midst of even that even those times. Remember, Jesus said it like this in Luke in chapter 6. Verse 32. He says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he, that is God, he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now that doesn't mean that we can't correct one another. It doesn't mean we can't say no to one another. But it means that when we correct and when we say no, we do it with compassion and mercy, not with vengeance and anger and malice and all of that. Still a heart of compassion. We'd love to help it, but it's not best to help in this particular way. We'd love to give that to you, but we can't because it wouldn't be best for you. If we did, it wouldn't relieve your misery if we really helped you in that particular way. It wouldn't relieve your misery if we gave this to you right now. It would actually make you ultimately more miserable. Parents know that. We discipline our children. They don't believe this. It doesn't always happen this way, but it should out of compassion and kindness. We don't give in to the need of the moment. Why? Because we know in the long run that would make them miserable. They wouldn't grow up to be uh, who they need to be. And so we withhold, but not out of meanness, out of compassion and kindness to them. We know we're to be compassionate and kind to each other as God is to us. We know that we're to be compassionate to all people as God speaks to the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 7, 
verse 8, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, meaning the stranger, the one outside your camp, or the poor. And none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Prophet Micah puts it like this. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or to love mercy. It's that Hebrew word chesed. It's to love that. What's that mean? It means to love, to enjoy the very fact that God loves us this way. And because we so loved being loved with his mercy and compassion that we're merciful and compassionate to others and to walk humbly with God. How do we do that? Well, as I said at the very outset, we put it on. How do we do that? Again, nothing fancy. I don't have a spiritual formula that says walk through these steps this way in three minutes and you'll be done with that and you'll be compassionate and kind. Remember, we're being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. We're learning the compassion and kindness of God to us. And we're learning to be compassionate and kind. This has very little, if anything at all, to do with your personality, your personal disposition. Some of us seem more patient, more kind and compassionate just by our very nature. For those for whom it's natural, it may be harder to be this. Because it may come so natural to you that you may give God no mind at all. You just do it. And this is a conscious putting on. This is saying, I'm not like Jesus. This is saying, God help me to be like him. So I come to know my own heart. I come to confess my own sin. I come to pray that God would work in me his kindness and compassion. And that by way of knowing his kindness and compassion to me. So I meditate upon his kindness and compassion to me. I think about what he's done. And I appeal to him on the basis of his steadfast love that he would change me, that he would renew me, he would recreate me in the image of Jesus. And they'd give me eyes to see. He would give me a heart to feel. And he'd give me a compulsion in love that I must act. I must help. I must show kindness. So we see little kids running around the church, we might think they need to be taught. How are they going to grow up in this unless they're taught? We see babies being born and we have compassion for their moms. How can they raise these children without help? We see teenagers in the life of church and we realize, how can they grow up following after Christ unless I help in some way show the very kindness of God? We see people in our neighborhoods who are like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. How can I enter into their lives in some way? We see people at the grocery store. We should... Pray for them. God, help me to love them, to help them, to be compassionate to them. We see people in need. 
materially? How can we help them? Our hearts should break for them. We have opportunity through Family Promise, through the Five Loaves House, for other situations in our covenant groups and in our neighborhoods and in our friendships and in our workplaces to be kind and compassionate. God, help me to be that. We don't do this just because we think that's the right thing to do. We do it because we know that he's working in us to make us like Jesus. And we know that that is real life. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us. That your loving kindness to us would be better than life. So that our lips would praise you. Even while we live. Father, help us to know all that you've done for us. And our Lord Jesus, the compassion that you've shown to us. The mercy that you've granted to us because of him and in him and through him. Father, renew us in the knowledge of him. so that we can be renewed in his image, conformed to his image, we pray. Father, we pray for those who do ministry in various ways, for for moms and dads, for police officers, for medical people, for construction workers, for teachers, for office workers, for mechanics, for all who work, Father. We pray that in those places that they would evidence the very compassion and kindness of Christ. Father, open our eyes. Let us see people as they really are. And let us respond as you would have us respond in kindness and compassion. Father, pray for Brad Supple as he does ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ that he'd be merciful and kind and compassionate. Father, for Karen Pankratz as she prepares to minister in New York City, Father, that you would be with her. And she would be one who not only knows the compassion and kindness of Christ, but shows it in her own life. Father, pray for Douglas County Young Life on this day that you would be with Rick and others who minister in that sphere. And we pray, God, that you would be with them and help them show the very compassion in Christ and mercy of Christ. Father, we pray for those who are ill in our church. We pray for Doug Robinson as he recovers from surgery. Pray for Dustin and Katie Mortensen as they mourn the loss of this child that Katie was carrying. Be with them, Father, please. May we help them. Father, we thank you for the Family Promise Network. We pray that we can continue to bless you, Father, as we bless those in need. May it not be perfunctory. May it not be just our duty. May it not be just something we just do because it's one of our programs. But may we do it because we care. And may we care because we've been cared for. Father, open up other other opportunities for us to know and to show the mercy and the kindness of God. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Please stand for the benediction. Whew. Our response will be to sing together.
Please receive this as God's benediction now. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, together let us sing. you're calling me to come and behold the wondrous cross to explore the depths of grace that came to me at such a cost where your boundless love conquered my boundless sin and mercy's arms were open wide my heart is filled with a thousand songs Proclaiming the glories of Calvary With every breath, Lord, how I long To sing of Jesus who died for me Lord, take me deeper Into the glories of Calvary Sinners find eternal joy in the triumph of your wounds. By our Savior's crimson flow, holy wrath has been removed. And your saints above join with your saints above, rejoicing in the risen land. My heart is filled with a thousand songs Proclaiming the glories of Calvary With every breath, Lord, how I long To sing of Jesus who died for me Lord, take me deeper Into the glories My heart is filled with a thousand songs Proclaiming the glories of Calvary With every breath, Lord, how I long To sing of Jesus who died for me Lord, take me deeper Into the glories of Calvary You are dismissed. <laughs>